Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, February the 12th, 2019. Today is actually Lincoln's birthday, which we don't celebrate on its own anymore, since now we combine Lincoln's and Washington's birthday into one President's Day. Yeah, some things have changed, but others, unfortunately, have not, as is very eloquently sung about in this song.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Yeah, some things will never change, but don't you believe it. As sung by Bruce Hornsby and his band The Range, the song is called The Way It Is, and so is the album. It came out in 1986. And you know, I didn't even know that this record existed until not that long ago. I was listening to the music channel on Spectrum while I was cleaning the house. Because, yeah, we clean the house sometimes. And, you know, 80s music, it's one of our jams. And I heard it and I was like, whoa, this song is great. So I looked him up and he's an American singer, pianist, songwriter, multi-genre, everything from bluegrass to jazz to jam to gospel, rock and blues. Played with everyone from the Grateful Dead to Eric Clapton, Sting, and won a Grammy with this song. This song has been sampled by rap artists such as Tupac, E-40, and Mace. And it's a great song. And I bet some of you have never even heard of him. Well, we're going to hear a lot of things a lot of people may not know about with this episode. Starting with this song, chosen by our guest artist this week to open their episode. That song was a marimba called Ferrocarril 
de los Altos, the Los Altos Railroad. Now, a marimba is two things. One, it's a musical instrument that's similar to a large xylophone, hence the sound. And two, it is a traditional Guatemalan music genre, much in the same way like salsa and merengue are genres to Caribbean Latinos. And the marimba is also a defiant, proud tradition among the Mayans. And this song was by Marimba Centro Americana on an album called Vejeces y Recuerdos, which means Old Age and Memories, an album that came out in 2007. Now, you might be wondering, what do Guatemalan music and a song about social injustice and change have to do with our guest artist this week? Well, wait no longer, kids, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Everybody. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week! Woohoo! This week we have someone all the way from Chicago. He runs a wonderful show called 80 Minutes Around the World, stories on immigration, assimilation, and all kinds of stuff. So please welcome the Fish Out of Agua, Nestor Gomez. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so thank you so much for making the trek out to Brooklyn. This is a home interview, so if you hear me meow, it's one of the cats. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I asked this question of everyone when we begin our time together, where and how did we meet? But in this case, the answer is 15 minutes ago on the front stoop of where I live. <laughs> yes. And it was funny because I was texting you, I'm here, and at the same time that you were texting me, where are you? So, yeah, one of those things. So we met on the stoop, but I have been following your storytelling for the last few months because of the shows that you that you have been doing. You also had a storyteller that I also just recently met, Annie Tan. She is amazing. Yes, she, she told a story at uh, my previous show here in New York City, at the very first show that we had, she told uh, an immigration-related story, and she is an amazing storyteller. And I also know that another storyteller that you are having on your show is also someone that I've worked with. Her name is Judith Heinemann from Chicago. Yeah, she's been working on the storytelling community for years. Yes. For years. She's, she's a huge name on the storytelling community. I also know two other storytellers from Chicago, Shannon Kaysen and Scott oh. Whitehair. I've met. They're both fantastic. And Chicago has a very big storytelling community, right? Yeah, there's, a, there's at least three shows every night in Chicago. Wow. But we'll, every single night of the week. We'll get to that in a minute. Right now... I want to talk about you. All right. So, Nesto, where are you and your family from originally? We are from Guatemala, Guatemala City. And um, I came to the United States in the mid-'80s. My mother came here years before me. Uh, she left us in the care of her grandparents, and she came here with our, with our father. And then after a few years, she sent for us, and we came here undocumented through, Guatemala, through Mexico and through the United States. How old were you when you arrived? I was about 15 years old. I went to high school as an undocumented kid. And right when I came out of high school, I was like, oh, I'm going to college. And they're like, oh, <clears throat> you cannot go to college because we don't have any money. Okay, I'm going to get a scholarship. Uh, no, you cannot get a scholarship because there was no scholarship back then for people who were undocumented. So I just, uh, I just got married and started working. Yeah, now, nowadays when I go and see uh, kids that are in college that are uh, 
getting the education through DACA. I feel really grateful for them. Um, I wish that I had the opportunity, but I'm not gonna be uh, um, I'm not gonna be upset about it. You know, these different times. Uh, if anything, I'm happy that they are getting the opportunity that I didn't have, because that, that's the way it's supposed to be. We are supposed to make sure that the generations that come after us have it easier than we did. Yes, yes, that is absolutely correct, and it's always that. All the good things happen after you graduate school or after you do this or after you do that. Like you, when you just pass that point, it's like, what? Why you have this special thing now? <laughs> yeah, no, Why didn't yeah. I get it? So, so you came here at the age of 50 and you were always living in Chicago? Yeah, always. I have, well, as an, as an undocumented, traveling is not one a big option. You, know, right. you, you, you go to a city and you don't want to be moving around because every move that you make is a red flag. You know? Now, I'm sure that that was just a big for want of a better word, cloud over your entire growing up. How did it affect you with trying to reach out or make friends with people that were that were American citizens? Well, you know, when you're undocumented, it's not something you publicize. It's not something that you go to tell people, hey, by the way, my name is so and so I'm undocumented. Mm. If anything, when people ask you, you have documents, you're like, yeah, of course I have documents. You don't have any, but you don't want you you don't want to tell anybody. There's people that actually, when they uh, when they tell other people that they don't have any documents, they actually come out of the closet, as we say it, because it's something that we keep secret. Because you don't know, you know, I, I I might have a conversation with you and tell you, oh, I don't have documents or something like that, and you might be a person who's against immigration, doesn't tell me anything, goes right back to ICE and calls ICE on me. Oh, God. So it's something that people always keep yeah. a secret. And when you go to a place to work, you're not going to go, hey, by the way, I, want, I need a job, but I don't have documents. You, you tell people, yeah, I have documents, and then you make excuses why you can't bring them, or if all the people, they, they get a, a fake documents, or they, they find a way to work at a place where they don't require documents, they, they get paid cash. But um, yeah, this so is something that people keep a secret. So the neighborhood that you grew up in, was they were all in the same for want of a better word, boat as you? Or uh, were there other Latinos that had been born here? There were Latinos. At the high school that I went to, there were a lot of Latinos that we knew of or suspected that had no papers, like myself. And there were some people that were from Puerto Rico that had papers. There were people that were from here. You know, there, there, there was, it was a, a mix. How do you live undocumented? That is just such, like, just because the simplest things that I can take for granted because being my family from Puerto Rico, we became citizens in the 1920s. But like, describe for somebody who really wants to be informed, like wh what it's like, like for you growing up, like how do your parents get work? What, how much fear do you have to be under all the time? And is there ever any time that you could feel safe? But you cannot live in fear because if you live in fear, then you worry all the time. You don't want to go out on the street. You don't want to take a, 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 a bus. You don't want to take the train. You don't want to go out anywhere. And you have to go out in order to go to work. Mm -hmm. You have to have a life. Uh, you go to work, you find a job, either, like I say, either because you have uh, fake documents or you find a place where they don't require documents or you just find a job and you say, well, I'm going to bring you the documents later. And you just keep postponing it until they forget about it. Um, and when you go to work, you just pray that the immigration doesn't come. You just go to work. It's something that you keep in the back of your mind, but you're not thinking about it. Mm. Yeah, um, I guess you would have to, because yeah. otherwise, how are you going to function? Yeah, like like when you drive, you know, every time that you drive, there's always the chance that you're going to get into an accident. But you don't get into your car thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try to get into an accident. I'm not gonna. You just drive hoping that you won't get into an accident. The same thing. You go to work hoping that immigration doesn't catch you. You keep, you, you keep living hoping that it doesn't happen. And even as like um, 
I, I, I lived in the USA for, for a while and I didn't get a license. I didn't even learn how to drive because I didn't have documents. So I didn't want to have to drive uh, because driving without a license and they pull you over, then the police, the first thing they ask is for your document. You don't have your document, then they know you are undocumented. So for a while, I didn't even want to drive because I didn't want to have to have the, the, the chance that the police will pull me over for whatever reason. But one of my kids uh, was born with asthma, and we had to take him to the hospital a lot. So I bought a car because of my son, because I had to take him to the hospital a lot. And then I started driving, and I remember driving without a license. And that's the one thing that you're like, as an undocumented, you have to be extra careful. You, if, if the speed limit is 40, you don't want to go 41. Yeah, if, 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 if the light is changing from, uh, from green to yellow, you slow down instead of trying to pass the light. You just drive extra careful. So basically, the pressure is that you need to be perfect in a way that everyone else doesn't. Yeah. And that's an extra pressure to the pressure that all people of color have is that we have to be better than the mainstream society anyway. Not only do we have to work twice as hard, but we have to be twice as careful. Even after, uh, even after you start getting your documents, because it's not like you get your documents and you become a citizen. It's a long process. It took me until March of this year to become a citizen. So imagine I came here on, the, on, on 1985, and I only became a citizen this year. It's a long road, not, not only because the application takes a long time, not only because it costs money to apply and you got to pay a fine, uh, but also because once you get your uh, your green card or your resident alien status, you have to live a certain amount of years as a resident alien before you become a citizen. And during that time, you cannot commit any crimes. God forbid that you commit a crime. There's a lot of people that they get the documents and then they're like, oh, I'm okay now, and you know, before they become citizens. And they do stupid things. And then they lose they resident alien and they actually get deported. Oh my God. Yeah, and it could just be something as simple as uh, drinking a beer in a, in a park, which is not allowed. And of course, the cops are going to go after a brown person before they go after a yeah, white person. Course. Now, your children were born here, correct? Yeah, yeah. Was your wife born here? My, I've been, I've been married, this is my third time that I got married. My first wife, right out of high school, we got married when I was like 19 and she was like Oh my God, I was like 18 and she was like 16. We were like really young. Oh my God. We were just kids. And she was Mexican. This is a funny thing. Her parents had come here undocumented and they had a daughter that was born here. So her, the daughter, the first daughter was a USA citizen. Then the government was catching a lot of people who were undocumented. So they decided to go back to Mexico. And there in Mexico, my wife was born. And then their parents decided to come back to the United States, so they have another daughter here that was USA citizen. But just because one person is a citizen doesn't mean that everybody is a citizen. There's many families with multiple status. And I don't think that people really realize that, do they? There's people th that have no idea. There's they lump that, everybody into lump. a box. Yes. And they don't see each individual story. Yeah. So many stories, and you are at the forefront at getting these stories out. And I was having an argument with a person the other day where the person was like, well, why they don't fix their countries instead of coming over here? And I go like, well, you know, we've been trying to fix the situation in Central America, but USA interference has made it worse. And I, and I pointed out some cases in which the government of the USA actually went there and took out our government and put a government that was more in line with what they wanted to do. Mm. So the government of the USA took our president out and put somebody else in charge. And then they did the same thing in Chile. They did the same thing in other countries. 
So and this person is like, well, yeah, but that happened a long time ago. That should have been fixed already. And I say, you know what? Slavery happened a long time ago. And people of color, black people, are still suffering the consequences of slavery. It was centuries ago. So if the situation in a country happened decades ago, imagine how long it takes for the situation like that to be corrected. And that's why there's so many countries like Honduras right now that's going through so many troubles because of USA interference. And when you try to explain it to people, they just don't want to listen. They just don't want to understand. They're just like, no, 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 people should stay over there. And they should fix the countries and they should just stay over there. Let, let's talk for a minute about um, how you got to do the work that, that you're going to be doing because we've been going on the righteous <laughs> tangent about yeah, yes, yeah. injustice. <laughs> so um, you are a writer as well as a storyteller, correct? Well, I used to stutter when I was a kid. I couldn't talk. I used to stutter really badly in Guatemala. Um, I couldn't have a conversation like, like we're having right now. I remember that in Guatemala they put you in front of the class a lot to talk about what you're learning and I used to like freak out because every time that I went in front of the class I would just stutter like really badly. And even when I came to the United States I had gotten over my stuttering a little bit but because I had to learn to speak English, it was a different country, I started to stutter again really badly. And for a long time I was afraid of any public speaking whatsoever. But I always wrote things. I always wrote things. I always wrote a lot of poetry because I couldn't talk. So all my all everything that I wanted to express, I used to write it down. Write. Down. I wrote poems since since I was a little kid. And and then when I finally got over my stuttering, when I felt confident enough that I could talk to people, I told myself I wanna get over my fear of public speaking. So I went to a storytelling show, and I like I saw it. And I'm like, oh, I wanna do that. And, uh, then what show was it? It was a, a, a mod. Oh, a, it, this is in Chicago? In Chicago. It was Chicago. I actually wanted to go to a poetry slam in Chicago and tell one of my poems, but all my poetry was in Spanish. So I was like, no, people are not going to understand my poetry because I had to translate it. It's, it's not going to work. And then uh, at the poetry slam, there was a flyer for a, for, for, for a mod grand slam. And I went to the mod grand slam and I saw some of the storytellers there I saw Archie Arch, which is an amazing storyteller. He's one of the people that I'm like, he's, he's an amazing storyteller. Um, so I saw him and I saw all the people telling stories as well. There were 10 storytellers, but I remember Archie Arch for sure. And I remember telling my wife, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. And my wife was like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it sounds like something you could do. I'm like, no, I could be really good at it. She's like, yeah, maybe. Like, and I could win. And she's like, no, yeah, relax. Now, now you're dreaming too much. And, and, but then, you know, like, you always have that, the, the, uh, like, I had uh, the second thoughts. I got like, like, yeah, I might be able to do it, but people are not going to understand my stories, my accent. People are not going to relate to my stories as I'm undocumented, as a, people, as a person, a Latino. People don't want to hear what I have to say. And then I heard Lily B on the radio. She was telling a story about Humboldt Park and her abuela and mangoes. And I was like, hey, if she could do this, I could do it. So I got on, I, I, I wrote my first story because I, I, I always write my stories and then I like memorize them. I write them and then I tell them to myself because the way that I write and the way that I speak when I tell a story is very different. I use a lot of words that I cannot pronounce like Thursday, the day before Friday. <laughs> if I'm telling a story, I say the day before Friday because if I say Thursday, people are like, what? <laughs> so I, I write very differently to how, how I actually tell a story. And I went to the, to, the, to the slam because my wife got me a ticket as a birthday present. And we went to the slam, and I remember putting my name in the hat. And they called me, I told my first story, and I won. How do you like that? Yeah, and it's so surprising. Yeah. Like, like, I just went there to get over my fear of public speaking, tell a story, and that was it. And it just became this huge other thing because 
I started telling stories on a regular basis. Well, let's backtrack just a little bit and going back to when you're young. Um, how many siblings do you have? I have two brothers and one sister. And where are you in the birth order? Are you the oldest, My youngest? My sister is 11 months older than me. Oh, okay. Then I have a middle brother who's five years younger than me, and my younger, younger brother is okay. ten years younger than me. Now, are you the only one in your family that has an artistic temperament? No, for what I know, my brother, my my middle brother, he writes poetry too. He doesn't um, he doesn't share this poetry with the public, but mm. I know that he writes poetry. My sister, she's she's a, a she can draw really well. Uh, my younger brother, he draws pretty well, too. He's, he, I think he was trying to become a tattoo artist. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know exactly where that went because he has a family. He has three kids. And you know how work doesn't usually follow the same path that you yes. want with your dreams? Yes, yes. I, we, yeah. All too well, we know that. So were your parents? I know your parents must have had to work so incredibly hard to support you guys. But did they have artistic temperaments also? Did they encourage education and reading in your house? My father was mostly a person that kept to himself, and my mother was a person that was working too hard. Mm. So they, my mother would always work really hard, and she would always do tell us, go to school, get your education, go to school. My mother actually taught herself how to read because she was so busy working. Uh, she comes from a really poor family. Like I used to tell my mom, I used to complain to my mom, like, oh, we, we, we never had a room of ourselves. Like I always had to share a room with my brothers. My mom was like, I used to sleep in one room with all my siblings and my parents. And they used to sleep in a house that was made out of like pieces of wood. You know, those houses that people put together on yeah. their own? Like a shack. That's how my mother used to live. Like, oh, my God. Like, if I complain about how poor I was, my mom was, like, really poor. So you said that you did, you were not able to go to college. I was not able to go to college. I, I, I could have if I had to go to work, if I didn't have a family that I had to sustain. But I got married really young. Right, and you started having your children right away. Yeah, I started having my kids right away. What types of work were you able to get? Oh, I was work. I worked at a Taco Bell for like the longest. I worked really? at a Taco Bell for like five, six years. Wow. For, yeah, for like four, yeah, maybe longer. For like five, six years, I think I started working at restaurants as bus boy and food runner and server. And then after that, I started working as a, at a factory. Because I, I got divorced from my first wife, so I needed to get a paycheck that was more reliable than the check that I was getting as a, as a bad boy or as a server. Because as a server, one night you could make $20, and the next night you could make 200 So I needed to have a regular check, so I started working at, at, at a factory. And up to this date, I'm still working at a factory. I, work as, I do quality control. I've been working there for 10 years. Wow. So, yeah. So were you able, though, in between to still pursue your writing? I would always write stuff, especially because I got divorced twice. <laughs> ah, oh, I'm sure you have a lot of stories. <laughs> so, yeah, so I wrote a lot of sad poetry and mad poetry and, you know. Do you have I, children it, with each one of your wives? No, I only have children with my first wife. Oh, okay. Because right after I got divorced, the first time I was like, it really took a lot out of me getting divorced. Uh, I mean, I did a lot of stupid things, you know. I was young. I was really hard-headed. Yeah, te teenagers should not get yeah, married. Yeah. Yeah, but I also, the separation from my kids took a lot out of me. It's like I didn't want to spend one day away from my kids. So knowing how badly, it, how crazy it made me, how depressed it made me, I knew that I didn't want to have any more kids and having to even consider going to another divorce. Uh, that, in fact, uh, caused my second divorce because my second wife, eventually after five years of getting married, she's like, oh, I want to have kids. I'm like, well, I don't. Um, uh, yeah, that's a deal breaker. Yeah, that know. is a deal breaker. Yeah, uh, you got to be on the same page with that.
Yeah. I'm so sorry. No. Well, then you got married again, so but it's okay. I got married again, and, <laughs> and, and this, this is my third marriage, and hopefully the last one. So did you write mostly poetry? Did you write short stories also? I wrote just poetry. Did you ever want to go out and try to perform any of your poetry? Because I'm sure there must be plenty of places that do spoken word and poetic readings and stuff in Chicago. Yeah, but mostly in English, though. There's, oh, there's, especially okay. at back then, like that right now, there's a lot of places where they do poetry in Spanish, but back then there was mostly on English. So we talked about what made you want to start telling your stories. What year was it when your wife bought you that ticket to the Mottsland where you actually told the story? It was about four years ago. It was about four, about four years ago. Uh, and like I said, she bought me that ticket. I went to the slam, put my name in the hat, and I won. And then after they told me, you know, at the mod, when you win a slam, they put you for the grand slam, and they, you're going to compete against 10 other people, and I freak out. I was like, these people are freaking good. I don't know what I'm doing. This was just a luck of, a, of this was just luck that I won. I went home and wrote like a minute. I wrote five stories. I remember sitting down and just writing. I wrote one story, put it aside. I wrote another story, put it aside. And there was a story that I wrote that, you know when you write something, and you're like, oh, this is good. You could you, you could read it and you, you you had this sense that it was something good. I was I could have saved the story for a grand slam, but I was like it was a story that it was so personal that I knew that if I didn't tell the story, I was gonna chicken out and never tell it. So I wrote the story and I told my wife I had to tell this story. And then I look at the at the mod website and they had like a they had that a team that actually went with the story that I had just written, one of the stories, and I told it and I won my second slam. So I won the first one and I won the second one. Wow. So the universe was really supporting you there. Yeah, I was that's yeah. that's incredible. If you won two story slams back to back, did you get put into two grand slams or just the one? Well, I got, I got put into a second one later on, but I, I won the second slam and I remember I go, Oh, I know what I'm doing and I went to the third slam. I'm like feeling very, very sure of myself. And uh, James Gordon was there, which is another Chicago storyteller. And the way that he told the story, the way that he connected with the audience, that his performance was amazing. He blew me away with the performance. And uh, he's uh, he's a close friend of mine now. I had learned a lot from him because I always go to the storytelling event and I always watch people to see how they're telling a story, how they wrote the story, how they're connecting with the audience. And uh, Archie, Lily V, uh, James, Scott Whitehair, these are people that I had studied just so I could learn from them. So from the very second then that you discovered storytelling, that basically became your new creative outlet, correct? It, yes, because it gave me an outlet that the poetry hadn't given me to there because poetry was something more personal that I wrote a lot of poems. I kept them to myself. I showed them to a couple of friends. I posted them some on Facebook, but it was a very small crowd. And all of a sudden I discovered storytelling and I connected with hundreds of people immediately. And I was like, whoa, this is a medium that I could actually use to tell my stories. And you found a whole community out there in Chicago. But there, there, there has, this is something that I didn't know then, but there has always been a huge storytelling community in Chicago. Like, I'm going to participate on Filero Solo, which is a storytelling event, a festival that happens in Chicago, that is on its 27 year. Wow. That I didn't know about, because I, I, never, knew, I never knew about storytelling. It's just that the mod has a, um, a larger appeal with, with, a, with a crowd, maybe with a larger crowd. So these other 
storytelling event that happened, people don't really hear about them unless they're really within the community. Mm. And when you learn about storytelling, then you start learning about all this storytelling. There's so many shows in Chicago that have been going on for 10, 12, 15 years. Now, are these shows the ones that have been going on for years that are not the moth? Or are they the personal type of storytelling that the moth brought into the mainstream? Or are these more of the traditional, like, folk and fairy tale type of stories? Or is it a mix? It's a mix. There's some of them that are traditional, where they do folk stories. And there's some of them, like that one that Scott Whitehead does. Uh, Scott Whitehead has been doing his show for like 10 years. That's way before the mod even started in Chicago. And those are personal narratives. Okay. So how often do you perform now in Chicago or across the country? When I first started telling stories, I used to go out every single day of the week and tell stories. Because I just went like, I like those stories. I like every single day. Sometimes I would go to a storytelling, get out of there in the middle of it and go to another storytelling event. And nowadays it's more like twice, three times a week. Uh, and I do, I, I always go to support to other shows, you know, because sometimes I go out like three or four times a week, maybe on two of those occasions I perform, on two of the other occasions I just watch other people tell stories. It's it's very important to support yes. uh, the, your storytellers. And I have found, I've been a performer for a long time, since the late 90s, and done many different types of performance. And storytelling, that community is the most supportive and generous. And even though there is competition with you know winning a slam or whatever, people aren't cutthroat in the same way that stand-up is, let's say. Because mm-hmm. you maybe could steal somebody's joke, but you can't steal somebody's you story. You can't steal somebody's story. You can't steal no. somebody's story. But, uh, but see, but even within that competition, like I have won close to 40 mod slams. So I'll, sometimes I go to a mod slam and people are like, oh, I'm not going to put my name because you're here. And it makes me mad because I tell people, who cares if I'm here? Just because I'm here doesn't, doesn't mean that I'm going to win the slam. First of all, they might not call my name. Correct. Because they, they could be 12 people on, on, a, on, on a list or there could be 20 people on the list. They're only going to call 10. So I tell people, first of all, they might not call my name. Second, even if they call my name, my story might not be that good. You might get picked first. Yeah. Or even, <laughs> you if, my, first, you or even if my story is good, maybe the judges don't like it. Because sometimes... Like, I had told stories that I thought they were like, oh, this is an amazing story, and the judges were like, eh. And sometimes I, I wrote a story this morning, memorized it where I went to the gym in the afternoon, and I told a story, and the judges were like, woo! And I'm like, that wasn't a, such a good story. You, you never tell. You never know. You never know who's judging. Yeah. You never know what is going to resonate with who. But wait, how many smart slams have you won? Close to 40. 40? Close to 40. 40? Yeah. Coño. That's incredible. Well, I, t- I tell a lot of stories. I had done a lot of stupid stuff, so that helps me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. So a little Pascal says that you have a story that you, you're going to share with us. Yes, yes. Um, this story is basically... Uh, Did it win a slam? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a story about um, life in the USA when, when me and my siblings came from, the, from, came from Guatemala. And life in Guatemala is completely different to hear not only the weather, not only the way people speak, the way people um, look. It's very different, and this is basically about uh, some of the difference that we found when we moved to the United States, me and my siblings. Okay, take it away, Nesta Gomez. So my mom came into the tiny apartment that we shared with my mother and my siblings. And she came into the apartment, and she was pissed. She was mad. She opened the door and she said, ¿Qué carajos les dije? What the hell did I tell you guys? And I look at my brother, I'm like, okay, what did she say? She said to wash the dishes? We wash the dishes. 
she said to clean the apartment, it's kind of clean. She said to take a bath, so I kind of smell myself. I'm like, well, I did take a bath. And then I look at my mom like, I don't understand why you're so mad. And my mom is like, I told you not to be horsing around. I told you not to be making too much noise. You see, my mother had come to the United States many years before we came to the United States. She had left me and my siblings in the care of her grandparents. So she had come to the United States with my father, and then my mother and my father kind of separated, and my mother was living in a tiny studio apartment, big enough for one person. So when my mother sent for us, and we came to this country and documented, me and my three siblings, we came to live with my mom in this tiny little apartment. And my mother had told us to be quiet because she didn't want the manager of the building to find out that she has no more people into the apartment because that was supposed to be an apartment for one person and now there were five people living there. So my mother had told us to be quiet. But we were playing soccer inside the apartment because in Guatemala all the houses were one floor houses. We didn't have a person living on top of us. Now we were living on the eighth floor of an apartment building. We didn't know that the people upstairs could hear the people downstairs could hear, the people on the left or the people on the right could hear whatever we did. So we ran around and we screamed and we jumped and we threw stuff around. And we were supposed to be quiet so the manager didn't find out that we were there. So my mom was mad because the manager had found out that we were there and she had told my mom that we needed to move out. And my mom was screaming at us. I told you to be quiet because I don't have money to rent a bigger apartment and because the manager was going to get mad and tell us to move and now he told us to move and now told me what the hell am I supposed to do? The bed, the sofa, the TV, the fridge, the stove, everything in this apartment belongs to the apartment. We don't own anything. We don't have anything. My mother said this and she started crying and me and my brothers are like, damn, what are we going to do now? There was nothing we could do. We went to sleep. The next morning, my mom went to work. She was still pissed at us. But one of her co-workers had decided that he was going to move back to Mexico. He had enough for the American dream and he was going back to Mexico. So he was sending all his old furniture. And immediately my mom is like, how much do you want? I buy it. And the guy asked for a couple hundred bucks. For, so my mom is like, yeah, I, I want it. So the guy is like, okay, so when, do you, when are you going to come pick it up? And my mom is like, no, 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 no. Leave it there. I'll move in the apartment that you are at. Uh-huh. And the guy like, I don't care. I'm moving out, so I don't care. So that's how we found ourselves the next weekend, moving out of our one-bedroom apartment near the lake to another neighborhood in Chicago to a bigger apartment. I remember me and my brother, we went into the apartment, and we were amazed because this apartment had two bedrooms. We were living in a tiny one bedroom apartment where I was sleeping in the sofa, my brother was sleeping in a, in a closet, and my younger brother and my mom and my sister were sharing one bed. Now we were moving into an, apartment, into an apartment that had two bedrooms, which meant that my mom and my sister could be in one bedroom, and me and my two brothers could be in the other bedroom. It was a big change. It was amazing for us. This apartment was bigger, and the best thing, the apartment had a little yard. It was a building with only three floors, and it had a yard. Me and my brothers, we could play soccer in this yard. We love playing soccer. We were just thinking about this when a huge white man walked into the apartment. ustedes? Who the hell are you? He asked. He was the owner of the building. My mother came to this man and says, like, oh, we are your new tenants. 
And the guy is like, no, 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 I don't even know you, lady. Who the hell are you? And my mom explained to the guy that the previous tenant was moving out because he was going back to Mexico and she was going to move in. And the, man, and, and the owner is like, no, 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 lady, this is not how it works. I'm supposed to have noticed that you're moving in. I'm supposed to check your credit history. I'm supposed to have a, a, a deposit and the first month rent. I, I don't even know who you are. And my mom is like, money? You want money? And she just put a lot of money in his hand. The guy is like, okay, since I see that you have kids here and you need this apartment, I'm going to let you stay here for three months. But after that, lady, you're going to have to move out. Out, out. So my mom's fine, three months. Me and my brothers, we were excited because we had a yard that we could play soccer. So we went every day out to play soccer. The yard had nice grass. But with soccer playing comes broken windows. And it didn't take too long for us to start breaking windows for us to start destroying the grass. The owner of the apartment came three months later and screamed at my mother, I need you and your soccer playing, window breaking, grass destroying kids out of this apartment. Now, now, now. We live in the apartment for 10 years. In fact, my mother didn't move out of the apartment until she had saved enough money to buy her own house. A couple of years ago, I was driving around the old neighborhood and I saw the building where we used to live. So I went to see if the grass in the backyard had grown back. There wasn't a yard anymore. Instead of a yard, there were parking spaces. Instead of apartments, there were condominiums now. The owner of the building was still there. So I asked him, hey, do you remember me? He said, yeah, I remember you. You broke a lot of windows. And he said, I heard that your mother bought her own house. I said, yeah. He asked me, did you broke a lot of windows there? I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit older now. I don't, I don't play that much soccer. And then I asked him the question that I've been meaning to ask him for a long time. I asked him, if we were always giving you such a hard time, we were always breaking windows, we were destroying the grass, why did you let us stay here for so long, even after we moved in without letting you know that we were moving in? And that... And the owner of the, of the apartment said, look, your mother was always working really hard for you guys. She worked two, three jobs. You guys went to school. You guys were never gangbangers. You guys never got in trouble. And your mother always kept an eye on you guys. Even after you guys started to get married and move out, your mother stayed here working really hard, saving enough money to buy her own house. You know who your mother reminded me of? Your mother reminded me of my own mother when she came from the old country, how hard she used to work to save enough money to give me a better life. Or who was I to tell your mother to move out when she reminded me so much of my own mother. The immigrant spirit that my mother, that I could see in my mother, I could see it in your mother. I looked at the man, I just shook his hand, and I walked away because I knew that he was telling the truth. I knew exactly what he meant. There was really nothing else that I could say to him. That is such an amazing story. Where was the old country that that um, a building owner, landlord, was from? He was from, no England, the other country. Uh, Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. Ireland. Okay. Ireland. Yeah. Wow. See, everybody's an immigrant at some point. Most of the people are immigrants. Only yeah. Native Americans. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. well yeah. yeah. Of course, only the people that are indigenous are the real Americans, and that's a whole nother story for a whole nother <laughs> time. That. Well, what is the name of that story? 
um, I call it a deadline because it was something that, that the guy kept giving my mother a deadline. Deadline, you had to move out, you had to move out. And my mom's like, like it's amazing that we that my mom stayed there for so long. Yeah. Because my mom, my mom would always make sure to pay the rent on time. That was one thing that my mother always like. I don't know how the hell she did it. Like it was, it was me. My sister and my two brothers. My sister helped my mother. She was working too. But I don't know how the hell my mother saved money to pay the rent, to pay the bills, to save money to buy her own house. Wow. Like after I got married and had my own kids, there were times where I was looking underneath the sofa for coins just so I could have enough money for the bus to go to work. And then I like kept looking at, at, at my mom and be like, how does, how does my mom do it? How did she do it? How did she do it for so long? She always worked at factories and she developed arthritis. Mm. And I remember there were times when she would like massage her hands for like half an hour just to get ready to go to work. Wow. The dedication of a mom. Is she still alive, your mother? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's still alive. Is she still working? Uh, she finally retired. Oh, good. Your family could have come from... Any number of countries. Yes. And that story is repeated over and over and over and over again. And we need to hear more of these stories. And isn't that the premise of the storytelling show that you've, that you now uh, produce? Did you, are you the person that founded it? So as I kept telling stories at the mod, and I told stories about the birth, the birth of my kid, the birth of my daughter, the birth, my first marriage, my first divorce. And I continued to tell stories. I realized that some of the stories I was telling were basically an immigration experience and I didn't hear that many immigration experience stories so I kept trying to look for more immigration experience stories and shows and then finally realized instead of looking for a show why don't you just make one make a show where people could tell their immigration stories especially now with the anti-immigration policies and anti-immigration ideology that's going on with the administration I figured it's a was, was the best time to start telling immigration stories and get people to understand that immigration is not just about people crossing the border. There's people that, that, eat, that come to this country from all over the world, from, from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, first generation, second generation, people that are allies that were either born here, are either married to immigrants, or, or they have a relationship with immigrants in one way or another. So it's for people to understand that immigration encompasses a lot of people. When did you do your first show? I, we did our first show Oh my God, like a year and a half ago. So, oh, not that long, 18 not months that long ago. ago. Wow. Well, I had only been telling stories for like four years. That's true, that's true. Yeah. And you just like, like we said before, once you started, zoom, oh, yeah, you I'm just not, yeah. took off. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm crazy. When I start with something, I really get myself into it. I'm like really dedicate myself but that's, to it. But that's fantastic. And, lo and look how many people you've touched with your stories. Um, how many uh, cities have you taken 80 minutes around the world to besides New York? We did a, well, I did a show on Pittsburgh. I did a show recently in Kentucky. Uh, I did a, I, I've been to Madison. I've been to Milwaukee. I, be, I told an immigration story in Detroit. And we come here to New York. This is the second time here in New York. So basically um, across the U.S., have you been to California yet? No yet, but we're hoping, we, and when I say we, I say me, because I'm trying to get more people, to, I'm trying to, uh, to make this into an organization so we could take our show oh. on the road to as many cities as possible. Are you doing festivals as well now? Jonestown or there are like big storytelling festivals around the country have you started to try to reach out to people like that I got invited to the to the national storytelling uh, show 
Oh yeah, it was in the summertime. Yeah, yeah. I, I went there, and it was it was an great experience because I had been told Scott Whitehair had told me about the show. He told me about how they, they had a huge stand with a lot of people, but I figured it would be a couple of hundred people. There's like a thousand people on one wow. stand. And then I had a story that I was going to tell, which was a funny story, or it was going or a more political story. And I remember getting up on the stage, and I still didn't know what story I was going to tell. And then I realized that I was wearing a shirt that say, uh, I stand with dreamers. And then I told myself, like, what the hell am I thinking about? Tell the story you're supposed to be telling. So I told a very political story about what it means to me when I see kids in cages. Because I came to this country undocumented, and that could have been something that could happen to me. Or if I had stayed in Guatemala and then come at a later age, that could have been something that could happen to me with my kids. If I had stayed in Guatemala and my kids had been born in, the, in, in Guatemala. So it's a very personal situation to me. So I talk about that within the context of a story. And I remember a couple of people did get up and like, were like, ugh, and they left. But most of the people stayed and it went really well. The, the audience was really uh, touched by the story. And uh, yeah, I, I got a standing ovation, which was extremely surprising to me because wow. it, it, it was the story that I was meant to tell. It wasn't so much about me as a storyteller, it was more about the story. What I want people to remember is not me, you know. I want people to remember the stories, to remember what it means to be an immigrant, to, to, to probably learn something from all my mistakes, because I made a lot of mistakes, and hopefully inspire somebody else to share their immigration story. Nestor, I think that you've not just opened a metaphorical door, but a floodgate. And I sincerely hope that you and the work that you're doing just takes off and continues to inform, educate, and entertain people across the United States and maybe, hopefully, change a few minds along the way. So if people want to find out more about 80 Minutes Around the World or more about you and your work, where can they find it? Uh, they could find me on my website, NestorGomezStoryteller.com. They could find information there about my future performance. They could find some video clips. They could find some audio clips. And they could also find uh, everything about 80 Minutes Around the World because we have video clips there of all our previous uh, shows. Where do you see 80 Minutes Around the World going to next? I go... I see it going through every city in the United States. It should be in every school in the United States. I hope well, so. from our mouth to El Senor's ears. <laughs> so I asked this question, Nestor, of everybody when we come to the end of our chat together. If you had a word of advice or encouragement for a young person who knows that they have a creative drive within them, but they don't see how they can achieve anything with it. Everything is just seems to be working against them. But this child knows that they have so much more to offer than the world says that they should have. What would you tell this child? I would tell them not to stop. I would tell them because that the love that we have for the arts, either drawing or writing or singing or acting, it's like it's like breathing to us. Like, I always wrote something, you know, either a poem, usually poems, but now I write stories. I've been writing since I was a little kid, like writing. And it is, most of the time that writing just, just stay in my drawer. Nobody saw it. And, but that writing, all the poetry writing that I did as a kid, as a teenager, as an early adult, has helped me become a better writer. Wow. So just... Don't stop. 
Don't stop. Don't stop. Just do don't it. Stop. Just keep the love of what you do. Keep it. Make sure that you keep doing it. It doesn't matter if people don't see you on a stage. It doesn't matter if you don't get an opportunity to, to share with other people. Sooner or later, the opportunity will come. So don't stop. Keep doing what you love. If because it's a part of yourself. Yes. So just don't yeah. stop. Those are very wise words. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Fish Out of Agua, Nestor. Yeah, what a privilege and an honor. Hug on the air. We always end with a hug on the air.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was early mid-20th century Guatemalan singer-composer-guitarist Paco Perez with Luna de Xelahu, which means Moon of Xelahu. <laughs> it's a popular Guatemalan waltz. Um, Paco Perez tragically died in a plane crash in 1951, eerily reminiscent of the big bopper Buddy Holly and Richie Valens dying in a plane crash in the early 1950s also. That album was Marimba, Fiesta, and Folklore, a compilation that was released in 2008. And well, kids, that's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Visit our website, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, and learn about all of the many fantastic shows that we have for your listening pleasure. We're going to close with the last of Nestor's picks. Um, Ricardo Arjona, one of the most successful Latin American music artists of all time, and this is Jesus es verbo no sustan vivo, which means Jesus is a verb, not a noun, from his Animal Nocturnal album in 1993. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Porque hablar y escribir sobre Jesús es redundar. Sería mejor actuar. Luego, algo me dijo que la única forma de no redundar es decir la verdad. Decir que a Jesús le gusta que actuemos, no que hablemos. Decir que Jesús es más que cinco letras formando un nombre. Decir que Jesús es verbo, no sustantivo. Hermanos míos es verbo no sustantivo.